1: Hello and welcome back to The Napoleonicist. We're going to continue in a bit of a vein from the last episode in that we're doing something a little bit different. We are doing British Army. Don't start groaning at me and complaining because we're doing different British Army. We're not doing predictable peninsula war. The reason being, we're going to look at the British Army in Flanders from 1793 to 1795, but not in the traditional campaign sense that may follow in a later episode. I am joined by Robin Thomas, who has a PhD in archeology span from the University of Southampton, big up the fellow Southamptonian. He's contributed to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography and has published on the Furner's Campaign in journals, has produced an edited collection of letters uh, relating to Daniel George Robinson uh, for the Army Record Society. And crucially, in relation to today's episode, is author of No Want of Courage, the British Army in Flanders 1793 to 95. Robin, great to see you. It's been a little while since we've actually met up face to face, such as the nature of pandemics. How are you doing? Good to see you.
2: Very well, thank you, Zach. Very well indeed. And thank you so much for inviting me on your show. I know you've had a long list of very distinguished guests. And so I'm really honoured to be joining.
1: Um, you're just continuing in that tradition, is what I'll say to that <laughs> one. And um, because i was quite keen to have this one this i'm going to go out on a limb here but it's not really much for limb, and say this is an important study it's not just a campaign study which is the first thing i want to emphasize to people um this is a study of armies and how they work in the early part Well, the british army and how it works in the early parts of the french revolution and napoleonic wars now for one thing i am hugely guilty on this podcast Of neglecting anything that happens before about 1805 so it was really important to start dragging myself kicking and screaming into the french revolutionary wars and that period more generally but this strikes me as being on a par with george ward's book and some folks this might not um immediately mean anything but george ward produced a book called wellington's headquarters which is a genuinely really important study on how the army works day to day. This feels like an equivalent, but kind of working out what the situation was before a whole series of reforms that led to the situation that existed in the peninsula war. So this is going to be kind of really interesting. And I think it's a really key study. Let's start with some basics to ease people in particularly in terms of context, and I want to start by clearing up a myth from the start. The grand old Duke of York, that famous nursery rhyme. Am I right in thinking it doesn't relate to this expedition much though we like to think that it does?
2: I think we have to separate out the tune from the words and the tune goes back into the myths of time and has been applied to a number of other historical figures. The words were not written down until 1913 in Oliver Rackham's book, Mother Goose. So we can speculate about the origins of this, and it it probably would need a a cultural historian or or whatever to do that. But we apply it to this campaign, but but I think that's slightly questionable.
1: Okay, another one um, to kind of ease people in, because we do need to sort of cover the context. The expedition itself um i do want to get into the nuts and bolts of the book which as i say isn't just about the campaign but just give us a, a little bit of a sense of the context of this period what's happening in the campaign the way in which in, in which it unfolds because we have this perception of this being an utterly disastrous campaign um certainly towards the end of it less so in the start the start is quite promising um so talk us through what actually happens
2: mm. Well, I think, first of all, uh, we need to understand the theatre of operations Um, and in those days we're talking about the United Provinces of the Netherlands and to the south, the Austrian Netherlands, um, essentially modern-day Belgium, and as the name suggests, it's part of the Austrian Empire, Um, so hence the involvement of Austria in this war on the northern border of France. But we have to also realise that Austria has been trying to jettison this province um, and and, uh, undertake what was termed the Bavarian exchange. In other words, exchange the electorate of Bavaria for the Austrian Netherlands. But um, by the time the war uh, breaks out in 1792, uh, that has not been affected. So that is what drags Austria into this. Uh, Why is Britain involved? Basically, uh, because of something called the Triple Alliance, which was signed between Prussia, the United Provinces and Britain in 1788. The uh, British supported the House of Orange and maintaining the position of the stadtholder with the House of Orange, and the the, um, hereditary prince's uh, consort is a Prussian princess. Um, Princess Wilhelmina. There's been a big division in Dutch politics, basically between the Orangists and the Patriots, and the the French are notionally supporting the Patriots. Um, So, as a result of this uh, treaty, this triple alliance uh, between Austria, uh, sorry, between Prussia, Britain, and the United Netherlands, that drags Britain into the war to defend its interests with the navigation of the Scheldt and the territorial integrity of the United Provinces. So that's why Britain is involved. Um, In terms of what actually transpires during the campaign, the best way to describe this is a race against the clock for both sides. So on the Allied side, the Allied combined army consists mainly of Austrian troops. uh, And then there's a a Prussian army which um, did a a fairly ineffectual invasion of France at the back end of 1792, culminating in the so-called Cannonade Valmy, uh, and then spends most of the rest of the time besieging the city of Mainz, and then grinds to a halt uh, in the middle of 1793, just sitting on the Rhine. Uh, There is obviously a a smallish army from the United Provinces, about 15,000 men, commanded by the hereditary prince, And then uh, Britain sends over an expeditionary force, which is small. You're only looking at at about 8000 men uh, gradually building up during the course of 1793. More come over in 1794. But because Britain is historically weak militarily, um, during the 18th century, they hire a lot of German auxiliaries. Obviously, foremost amongst them are the Hanoverians, because George III is also a lecturer of Hanover. And, uh, ver- and men from the various uh, states in Germany. So, in this campaign, there are contingents from Hesse Darmstadt, Hesse Castle, and Baden. Uh, so, the race against time is for this allied army to try and penetrate the double fortress barrier on the northern border of France. These are Vauban constructed or improved fortresses in a double line um, before the French are able to recruit. Train and assimilate uh, the, uh, the the new men that they're raising in 1793, uh, and and to push the allies away. So, who is going to win this race? Can the allies beat a path through the double barrier uh, into the wide open spaces beyond, or can the French mobilize in sufficient strength to push them away before they have a chance to do that? And history tells us the French won that race.
1: So that's the, the, the context. Let's, let's start dealing with nitty gritty, shall we, which is um, arguably you know, slightly more I- exciting in a lot of respects. Um, the state of the army. This is an important one because, well, it's important on two levels. One is that long shadow, and I'm going to put long shadow in inverted commas with a question mark attached to it. Um, of the American War of Independence, Britain being, for all intents and purposes, humiliated in that conflict, um, it going catastrophically wrong for them. Um, and, you know, that having potentially some kind of legacy and, and you know, lessons to be learned and all the rest of it. But we've also got this sort of caricaturist image that's been handed down to us, sort of through the likes of, of Gilray and others, of you know officers who are either infants and i'm talking you know sort of 12 or something as majors or whatever um through two corpulent old men um just busily sort of dining on i don't know roast goose or whatever um, whilst their rank and file are, are emaciated serving on them, serving them hand and foot you know so what's the reality what kind of state is the army in
2: yeah well like most Sort of received wisdom There's an element of truth in, in all of that. Um, the background is the American war had lasted for seven years and had been extremely costly and so at the end of all wars, before or since, there is a massive round of budget cuts uh, and the army estimates are reduced from about two million pounds at the beginning of uh, 1783 to 700,000 pounds by the middle of that year. So this entailed a slash and burn to uh, the the army. Uh, For example, uh, a practical example, two companies per infantry battalion were erased, were disbanded. So infantry battalions are only eight companies uh, from 1783 onwards, and that remains the position until 1790. So there are basically three areas um, that that I can talk about briefly to answer your question, Zach, and the first is to do with army administration. Um, It may sound strange to people more familiar with with later periods, but in the 18th century, the British army did not have a commander in chief, except in times of war, so the 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 previous Commander-in-Chief, General Henry Conway, resigned in 1783, at the end of 1783, and there is no replacement until Lord Amherst is appointed at the beginning of 1793, just under 10 years later. So what that effectively means is the army has has no central administration at all. Um, It's run on strategic issues by the politicians who decide where they want to deploy the army, um, and, and principally that's the Prime Minister, William Pitt. Um, the King has uh, notional control, but obviously he, as a single individual he, he cannot look everywhere, so he relies on politicians and civil servants doing things for him, but he's most involved in the issue of officer promotions. There's something called the Board of General Officers, which looks after military detail so things like drill, tactics, clothing, the tariff for officers' commissions. Then this is pre-active union. So there's a separate Irish military establishment as well. And until 1790, individual units had a different establishment in Ireland compared to in Britain. So uh, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland has uh, quite a big role to play in matters of administration uh, for the military. And then very importantly in the war office as a secretary at war, uh, who is a civilian, but he, is, he has a critical role because again, it may, may sound a bit strange to say this, but the, the principal role of the army, I think it can be argued, um, was actually not for waging war against the king's enemies. It was for maintaining social order in the home islands, so uh, that, that brings in quite a number of issues um, to do with the, the next thing I, I can say something about, which is training, because if your regiments are dispersed, which they more or less had to be, firstly, there's no barrack accommodation that doesn't start to be built until about 1794, so this this time at the outbreak of war, there is no central place where you can house a a unit of infantry or cavalry. Um, They're dispersed amongst lodging houses, ale houses, houses of public entertainment, etc. So even if they're all in the same general vicinity, you've got men dispersed in penny packets in a variety of different places. And what that means is you're not bringing them together, you're not able to bring them together, for unit training. So essentially there's only one time a year when this might happen. And that's the inspection, the annual inspection by the uh, general officer commanding the district. Um, And many of those inspection reports still survive in the National Archives. But what you definitely don't have is any inter-arms training at all. So for example, infantry with cavalry or infantry with artillery. And the the artillery, is uh, essentially two um, light brass six pounder guns attached as uh, battalion guns for close fire support but those are not delivered to regiments until they go overseas on operations so there's no possibility of doing training. Units are also moving around a lot within, within Britain um, and you can't train recruits under those circumstances uh, particularly so you're moving on a fixed route from town to town till you reach your destination most of the infantry is based overseas um a minority in britain and most of the cavalry it's the reverse they're based in britain or ireland uh, and very very few indeed overseas but they're engaged in things like anti-smuggling patrols um anti-rioting uh duty that that sort of thing um so training is is a problem and even Within that, you can say a lot of soldiers are engaged in, um, let's say, unmilitary type activities. So, for example, public works projects—you know, repairing or constructing uh, fixed defences um, around the the coast—and certainly in the Guards Brigade and 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 in line infantry. Depending on the attitude of the CO, they could be engaged in private trade as well. So they may not even be. Um, with, with other soldiers of the same unit. I mean, the, the guards um, had uh, a, a category of other rank called outliers, and outliers weren't even paid uh, uh, as uh, soldiers. They were engaged in private business um, and their only connection with, with the regiment, the, with the, one of the guards battalions, was to be hauled back on a Sunday for a bit of drill and marched off to church parade. And then released for the next uh, week to go back to whatever they were doing to earn money. A lot of soldiers are engaged in things like harvesting. Um, in In the capital, they're engaged in uh, things like opera house guards. If you wanted a bit of um, music at your wedding, you could hire, you know, some soldiers with drums and fifes to, to, to play you out as, as you walk down the aisle. Um, <clears throat> so there's there's a lot of this type of thing going on. Um, and the a big issue why it's because soldier poverty, you know, the, the soldiers' pay had not been changed for a very, very long time, and this brings me on to the third thing I would say is about recruitment. It's a problem um, because of that. Uh, it's it's very much regarded as a, a job of last resort if you can't gain employment anywhere else, and so you know, getting people to join the army is, is difficult. Um, and a lot of the men who were recruited for the American war were done under a, a three-year conscription scheme. So of course they've all gone and you, you end up with massive depletion in terms of numbers in the regiments. And because the pay is not great, trying to get people to join um, is, is not easy. And for units that are based overseas, Uh, It's very, very difficult to get recruits in many of those colonies, for example, um, India, or the West Indies, or sparsely populated Canada. Uh, Where can you find recruits to join the regiments? So what they're doing is to send recruiting parties back home, but every regiment is doing its own thing, and there's no central control uh, until 1790 when uh, Inspector Generals of of, um, recruitment are appointed. But until that point, every regiment is just left to look after itself, essentially. So there are these three problems, administration, recruitment and training, um, which continue right up until the outbreak of war.
1: It just sounds like a horrific mess, to be frank. (laughs) Um, you, You start to wonder how it can even be classed as an army it just sort of sounds like a vague collection of people who occasionally dress up in a uniform and might be shown how to handle a gun Uh, it really does feel certainly to our kind of 21st century minds very sort of ad hoc and um, almost inept quite frankly professionism really isn't the watchword here Um, I'm curious about the assessments that do or don't get made of this force because there are periodical reports on the state of the army i'm not sure if at this point you've got the six monthly inspection reports i wonder if they come after robin is very kindly trying to prompt me by shaking his head and going (laughs) no they come later zach you should know this sort of stuff he's right i should i don't i'm a dunce um moving swiftly on nonetheless you know the the point still stands right That. there there are periodical assessments of the army and its fighting capability. So does anybody sit down and go, you know what, this isn't going to work. This is not well put together. This is not a cohesive force, which is, is the big issue, right? There is no cohesion here. And equally, just kind of briefly, I'm curious about the international comparisons because we often talk about how other nations have much bigger armies. Uh, for a variety of reasons that you've kind of touched on. Is there a sense that, you know, the the Prussian model, the French model, is meant to be better?
2: Well, I mean, the Prussians, because, because of the Seven Years' War, are held up to be, you know, masters of the battlefield, um, and you talked about you know, officer training, for example. Well, there is no formal training. Only the board of ordnance officers are given any training at, at Woolwich. Um, the officers in, in the army, and I, and I have to say here, the board of ordnance troops, the artillery and the engineers are not part of the army. Now, it may sound a bit shocking, but it's the Department of State. Um, so the officers of the army have no military training at all. It, it's done on a voluntary basis. On an individual basis according to how professionally competent you want to be as an individual Um, and that took the form of um, going to the continent to say a military seminary for example in in France look at look at the future Duke of Wellington at Angers for example Um, or going to Prussia or some you know Italy somewhere on the continent where you could learn about the military art and so this um, also means that officers who want to be professionally competent have also to be linguists because a lot of these military texts that they're having to read are not written in English. Um, Some of the officers involved in this campaign have actually translated military texts say from German to English for example for the the wider uh, community but Most of them will be written mainly in German or French and a few in Italian. So if they didn't read that stuff, they couldn't educate themselves. So a lot of officers are actually taking um, leave to go traveling on the continent in order to uh, for their own military education. And that's essentially it is hand to mouth. But that's how it was done. Um, There was nothing in Britain to, to fill that gap. And I think a lot of the reason for this, to have um, an army that was, uh, that was militarily strong, let's say, was regarded as being a threat to the order of society. And, and this goes right back to um, the 17th century, the English civil wars. Remember what parliament did, chop the head off the king, you know? Um, and backed by the army. and then you then you have the rule of the major generals in in the 1650s, 1660s, um, with the militia used to support their power, um, and soldiers forcibly quartered on the population. those things went very, very deep into the British psyche very deep. and that that does explain why. Um, there is a horror of a standing army and why things are set up in in such a way that there is a division of powers with different people involved in different aspects of army administration. So no one individual or no one body could assume control of the state or the head of state, for example. So yes, it does sound amateurish, Zach, but I think this is a lot of the reason, the background for it.
1: Yeah, it is just to take us not even out of the 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 18th century here but to take us all the way back to the 17th century (laughs) you're absolutely right it's I would argue it's impossible to overstate the significance of the long shadow of the English Civil War on Britain's attitude towards armed forces well into really the 20th century when you're looking at um, the, the mass conscription for World War I. You know, there's this huge antipathy towards a large standing army. You see this with the Restoration in 1660 and the struggles that Charles II has financially because Parliament won't give him large sums of money. Why? Because they don't want him to have a large standing army that he can then use to wipe away the authority of Parliament. And that then sets a series of precedents that, that track through ultimately to the glorious revolution and then you know you get a a slight kind of shift in, in the way that things operate afterwards but that that antipathy remains and it's it's strong and then it becomes part of tradition doesn't it it sort of seeps into the British psyche that there's no need for a large standing army and that's something that should be should be part of you know putting Britain on a pedestal and aren't we so wonderful kind of um attitude let's let's take it back though to our period before i i lose droves of listeners who who don't want to know about the 17th century they just want to hear about 1789 to 1815 um let's let's talk about organization and preparation um for an expedition this is something that until i'd spoken to you about this i'd never really sort of sat down and thought about the nuts and bolts of this and there are you were we were talking offline um a little bit about how there's sort of two phases to organizing an expedition there's the let's get these guys out there phase and then there's the sort of right we've got boots on the ground now what we need to feed these men and and so on so there's a lot to this so give us a sense of logistically what you need to do to make an expedition like this happen
2: yeah, I mean, looking at transport logistics, <clears throat> in the book, I spend quite a lot of time looking at transport logistics because, I mean, I know, again, it sounds silly to point it out because it seems so obvious, but there's horse-drawn armies here and they pull wagons of various descriptions and what have you, and all of that has to be provided. But before I come on to that, is the, you've got the seaborne logistics, you've physically got to get them off the island of Britain. Onto the continent, and that means you've got to go onto the shipping market and hire merchant vessels, um, you know, suitably fitted out to to act as troop transport. And so those are taken off the market, basically by brokers uh, and hired to the government. But the Board of Ordnance, being different as it usually is in most matters, uh, they have their own transport office. Um, and until the beginning of 1793, when that function is passed over to the Navy Board, who, who are then responsible for chartering uh, ships to carry Board of Ordnance assets overseas. And then, then again, in in middle of 1794, that job goes to the Transport Board, another subsidiary board of the Admiralty. So that's essentially how uh, seaborne assets, if you like, deep sea assets are acquired. They do acquire... Uh, ships in 1794 uh, in Holland which are used for uh, prisoners, French prisoners, and they're, they're used as kind of floating barracks, if you like, for, or fra- floating prisons for the French prisoners. Um, then you've got river transport as well, because the initial mission of the Expeditionary Force was uh, for the defence of the United Provinces, and obviously as we all know there are some very big rivers in the United Provinces and a lot of canals. And so how to move your, your expeditionary force around the theatre of operations? Of course you will do it by water, won't you? So you're not going to send river craft over from Britain, you're going to acquire them locally. And in 1793 that means hiring them by contract from suppliers. And obviously this is happening at the same time as the Dutch are doing this, the, the same thing, the Austrians, and uh, all your German auxiliaries have to be shifted around the, the theatre of operations as well. So there's a market for these kind of assets um, and it's like renting a house when you pay the money, you've got very little to show for it at the end of the contract. So in 1794 there's a very big um, revamp of the entire transportation system and contracts are let for the construction of uh, 80 what are called billanders which are um uh, sort of river craft dutch river craft and another 40 river barges so in other words the attitude has gone from let's rent them from from contractors to let's own them ourselves because then we have control over these things and the people operating them they're not they're not reporting to someone else they're reporting to us uh, and they did the same thing with land transport as well so wagons and horses and things are not sent over from Britain because you can imagine the number, the, the shipping capacity that would be required to do that would, would be ridiculous. So the, the vision was that all of these transportation assets would be required would, would be acquired locally. Um, so just to give some idea of numbers, wagons, um, I found quite a nice return um, in uh, the National Archives listing the number of wagons uh, held by the Commissariat Department. This is just one department of headquarters. They were operating at the end of 1793. 159 wagons and another 220 were contracted. So that's just one headquarters department. Um, That does not count the requirements of the other headquarters departments or the individual units. So it gives us sort of idea of numbers. Horses, um, they were running about 8,200 horses by the end of uh, 1794. Now, that included cavalry horses as well, uh, but there were another sort of 17, 1800 horses, what they call wanting to complete. In other words, ones that they should have at full establishment but didn't. Um, So at the beginning of the 1794 campaign, the commissariat is is desperately trying to buy a thousand horses. Now, this is not for the cavalry. This is just for transportation. So this gives a kind of handle on the the scale of the issue. To bring it down to brass tacks, I can can run through some numbers for the reserve ammunition. Okay, this is not a...
1: (laughs) <laughs> i mean admittedly this isn't sort of something that you'd necessarily uh, if i told people at the start of this episode we're going to get you know kind of into the details of reserve ammunition but these things it's this it's in this detail so folks don't you dare switch off at this point i i say that as if i have some power um over my listeners who quite frankly would probably just turn off just to spite me for yeah. having said that but it's in these nitty-gritty little details that you start to unlock a lot of the important discoveries. So I'm absolutely up for this. I'm hoping you're going to tell me that you've got a spreadsheet on all of this as well, because (laughs) I'm absolutely a spreadsheet nerd.
2: I love spreadsheets, Zach. I spend most of my life on the spreadsheet. But anyway, that's another story.
1: (laughs) Kindred spirits. Anyway, back to reserve ammunition. I'll tell you just,
2: just very quickly, why is this stuff important? For anyone that may be out there doubting what the relevance of this is, If you're a military commander, one of the things you have to worry about is what the enemy is doing. But most of the rest of what you have to worry about, what is the state and condition of your army? How are you going to move it from A to B? How much food have you got to feed it? And where is that located? And how are you going to get it from the magazines to the front line? And what transportation assets you're going to need to do all of that?
1: Much though I don't like drawing modern-day comparisons, if anybody's questioning why on earth logistics matter in war, take a look at what happened to the Russian army over the past couple of months in Ukraine. Logistics breakdowns, logistic failures, and then the campaign goes to hell. So you know this is this is the this is how an army really operates. This is how an army actually gets to a, a battlefield in a state that it can fight. So much though I, I tend not to draw kind of comparisons there's your proof that this stuff really does matter but yeah we were talking about reserve ammunition yes so
2: let's i've I've said my little hobby horse thing about logistics so (laughs) let's just talk a bit about reserve ammunition obviously you can get your infantryman facing off against his french opposite number but if he hasn't got anything to shoot off you know that's going to be kind of tricky so 1793 each infantryman in theory was uh, equipped with 240 cartridges. Standard issue on the man was 60. And that's in his pouch. The remaining 180 are in wagons, first line reserve in the wagons. Uh, Now, each wagon, this is Board of Ordnance assumptions that I'm basing this on. They reckoned each wagon held 13,000 rounds. In 1793, there are seven infantry battalions, British infantry battalions in the theater of operations. And they base the number on 600 men in each battalion. So when you do all the sums, and I'm terrible at sums, but I did manage to work out this equates to about 78 wagons. So in 1793, you have a logistical tail just with the reserve ammunition of 78 wagon loads. So the Duke of York sits down in winter quarters uh, in 1793-94 and he thinks, how can I streamline my logistical tail? I know what I'll do. I'll reduce the number of rounds per man from 240 to 176. So what that means is your first line ammunition convoy has gone down from 78 wagons to 57. Now, obviously, that brings in issues to do with resupply because the Ordnance Park will have the rest of the ammunition. So where is the Ordnance Park based? And can you get the reserve ammunition to the first line reserve in time to resupply? Those sort of issues come into play.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom
1: i was about to grab a piece of paper and a pen to try and um calculate how many minutes of fire that might actually provide you with um on the basis of three rounds a minute um the answer would be not much i mean you're talking maybe an hour's worth of continuous fire obviously nobody's continuously firing during this period so yes but effectively there's a significant possibility you'd run out in the course of a very heavy battle there mm. that's that's poor from York's end what makes him so convinced that reducing ammunition is the solution to this and not you know limiting officers baggage or, or something like that
2: oh, they, yeah they did all that stuff too I mean it, it's it's a trade-off basically because you have a very big logistical tail. I've only talked here about the uh, reserve ammunition, the reserve musket ammunition, because you've also got artillery ammunition as well. And, and you've got the guns of the artillery park that have to be moved around. Um, and you've, you've got all sorts of spares and equipment and forge carts for the cavalry and all this sort of stuff. And if you clog your rear areas, with all this kit, even if you can find sufficient wagons and horses to pull it, then you're, you're gonna have a problem um, it, with maneuvering your, your fighting, your teeth arms around the battlefield. Uh, and so it's it's basically a trade-off. You know, how, how much can you reduce the logistical tail and still be effective in combat, um, as opposed to kind of loading up your logistical tail and, and then being paralyzed because you can't move anywhere. Um, so the, and remember the roads uh, we're not dealing with uh, metalled roads very often here. you're dealing with um, you know some some serious problems on on the roads, um, which the, the British certainly uh, run into problems with you know being able to haul overloaded wagons and carts and, and horses being kind of beaten to death because they can't pull what's behind them on the wagon. Uh, so there's, all this stuff is going on as well, so I can kind of appreciate why the Duke of York did this. And, and you've got to remember also that um, nobody's fought in this area since, well, for decades actually, uh, so there's, there's not a lot of retained knowledge um, about making war in this area. By the time you get to, you know, Waterloo and so on, people have fought all over it. <laughs> Several times, but and, and there's people with first hand experience, but this time, uh, a lot of people with experience in America, uh, but not really in fighting in, in Europe. One or two of the older officers have, uh, so they're kind of feeling their way a bit. But there's, there's a, a definite push to try and streamline and rationalize transport at the beginning of 1794 in an attempt to reduce the drag on the teeth arms.
1: Whilst well, we're talking about York let's let's stay with him and particularly the makeup of his staff because we particularly tend to think of this period as an age where the staff was likely to be filled on the basis of patronage rather than on the grounds of competency is that the case here or is that a little bit too much of a caricaturist kind of sketch to draw of these staffs
2: yeah not really I have to say and even though the Duke of York's a royal prince, he's second son of, of George III, his only position in, to, in the military was as proprietary colonel of the Coldstream Guards. And he spent quite a lot of his youth from 1780 to 1787 in Hanover. So his connections within Britain are not good. That's, that's definitely my impression. So, the people who he, he could choose himself were his ADCs um, and I go into quite a lot of detail about who these guys were and, and what their qualifications were and that sort of thing. Uh, essentially, he, he starts off as a Lieutenant General at uh, the beginning of 1793, goes to United Provinces as a Lieutenant General and he's promoted to General uh, 12th of April 1793. Now, why is that relevant? Because the number of ADCs is dependent on your rank so as a lieutenant general he has two when he becomes a general he then can recruit another two um, and then two of those guys actually depart one for another staff job in Flanders and the other one um, uh, back to Britain and so those are replaced by another two um, uh, ADCs so he, he has four from um, kind of April 1793 onwards and he takes on one additional ADC um, who was uh, a, a, a British guy, a British officer, uh, and a, in fact younger brother of the first adjutant general uh, in Flanders. And uh, he was seconded to Feldmarshal Freytag, who was the commander of the Hanoverian forces, who is uh, sent home at the beginning of 94. So York inherits his, his former aide-de-camp as his own extra aide-de-camp. Um, he chooses those guys but the key staff positions I've found nothing really to indicate he chose those people at all. So we're talking about uh, the adjutant generals, quartermaster general, commissary general, um, director general of the hospitals, those sort of guys are basically chosen for him. The only one of them that I've, I've seen any indication that he had an involvement was the second uh, adjutant general, uh, Colonel James Craig, uh, who joins the army at the beginning of 1794. And the only only connection with the Duke of York, I think he's asked, you know, is there anyone you can think of? And he says, well, I've heard Colonel Craig might be quite suitable, but I don't know the guy, but uh, you know, his reputation is is quite good in the army. And so he's whistled up uh, from the Channel Islands and sent over to, Flanders as as A G, um, but the other the other people are basically chosen for him, and it, if you contrast this with uh, Gray's expedition to the West Indies at the back end of 1793, he seems to have much more latitude in choosing his staff than the Duke of York did. The more subsidiary positions within the staff, yes, I think probably he he would have had people recommended. To him, from within the army already in Flanders, um, possibly, and but the the key positions. No, I think he he was basically they were allocated. That that's my impression anyway.
1: Okay, let's. I've just got one eye on the time, unfortunately. Um, ever the way with podcasting. So we're, I'm going to move us on to talk about medical services. Um, medical provision actually was in the news fairly recently um, for those who had an eye for it when it came to this campaign because of the discovery of remains from a field hospital that were found in the Netherlands. For more on that, folks, see a previous episode on this show about the Napoleonic Revolutionary War Graves charity. little plug there. Um, Hashtag ad. Uh, What's the bigger picture, though, in terms of making the necessary preparations from a medical perspective? Because The illness isn't on the scale of Vulcran by any stretch of the imagination. We do nonetheless have a perception that illness, ill health is an issue. But I know from our conversations, you would turn around and just sort of go, hmm, in relation to that, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, I mean, essentially, there's a big, big problem with the medical side of things. And that is flowing from mismanagement, if you like, from London, the Army Medical uh, Department, which becomes the Army Medical Board at the back end of 1793. Uh, And these guys are in charge of promotions within the military medical world. Um, The initial appointments are very often made by proprietary colonels of regiments uh, who choose their own surgeons or surgeon's mates, they're they're, they're not assistant surgeons at this time, they're warrant officers, the mates, Um, the surgeons are commissioned, but they're they're being selected um, by people, proprietary colonels, who really are not technically trained in the field of medicine. Uh, So again, it could be connections uh, and even if they were um, sent to Surgeon's Hall for an examination, this this was notoriously superficial and could just be like a 15-minute Q&A, like an oral, uh, viva, an oral exam. Now the, the problem with the medical staff, and that is people who inhabit the general hospitals, uh, uh, anything away from the regimental level, uh, they, those appointments were made from London and there's a, a lot of personnel change in London It starts off with um, three guys, one of whom uh, dies in October 1793, who has been doing everything. The other guy who works with him is basically uh, incapable medically, and he dies in January 1794. So you've then got a new set of people and they have a different policy uh, uh, as how appointments should be made. And they want people who are... um, academically trained. So, for example, the physicians that they appoint all have an MD degree, no military experience because I, I analyzed all these guys and how much military experience they've got. There were six physicians. They ran the general hospitals. None of them had any previous military experience. Uh, so the sort of illnesses that um, uh, soldiers would have been subject to, uh, gunshot wounds and all that sort of thing, they would have had no experience how to deal with that. Then you have the surgeons who've more or less worked their way up from the regimental level, and they have bags of military experience, but most of them do not have academic qualifications. And they get very uh, exercised about the fact that their lords and masters, the physicians, know very, very little about military medicine. And that means they, they, they become quite demotivated. Um, the lower ranked positions, the deputy purveyors, The apothecaries and so forth. Most of them do have military experience, but it's just the general hospitals are administered by the physicians who do not. And they don't take kindly to being told where they're going wrong. So there's a lot of infighting, there's a lot of internal politics, there's a lot of resentment. And at a regimental level, um, there's a lot of demotivation as well because they see that the way the promotion system has been changed as working to their disadvantage and where they might have expected to progress up the ladder then now that that is much less certain for them Um, and so a lot of neglect um, a lot of partially trained hospital mates coming over i I wasn't able to um, because records don't exist for most of the hospital mates about their career paths but the ones that i did find records for uh, about 60 percent had some previous military experience so if you kind of assume the rest of them were the same. Um, but yeah there's, there's a lot of maladministration in the general hospitals coupled with the fact in 1793 the sick and wounded are by and large kept with the regiments and so the, the regiments are carrying them around uh, as they move around the theatre of operations. Now that's fine if you're besieging fortresses one after the other and you're fairly static but in 1794, it's much more a war of movement. And so that long tail in this case, that spoke earlier about the logistical tail with reserve ammunition, but here you have a, another tail of wagons, which is hauling around the six. So at the beginning of that campaign, 1794, there's a general order going around saying, you send them to the general hospital. Um, but the general hospitals basically can't cope, um, administratively can't cope. And towards the back end of 1794, the Dutch are not releasing buildings and suitable locations for the general hospitals either. Um, So a lot of them end up on ships um, parked offshore in the severe winter, which then get frozen in. Um, And so how do you get the sick off in order to, uh, you know, be be taken along with the rest of the army as it withdraws towards uh, Bremen, where they eventually embark in uh, 1795. So there's a lot of maladministration. And one of the key issues that I found when writing this book is that however good or bad the army, the expeditionary force is, how successfully it operates at the, the, the administrative level very much depends on how effective the working relationship is with London. And if that has a faulty uh, uh, sort of, uh, uh, in terms of personnel or whatever, if the, if there's some some faulty organisation or lack of preparation, lack of uh, suitable timely administration, that will flow through to the expeditionary force. And there's not much the guys on the ground can do about it. They're already engaged in an active operation, so you know the the medical side of it falls apart as a reflection of. Uh, problems in London with the Army Medical Department, Army Medical Board, different for the commissariat. They report to the Treasury, beautiful working relationship, everything done in a timely fashion. So there's, a, there's uh, more or less the success uh, in the commissariat. Medical is different.
1: And just how bad is the sickness um, situation? Have we ever blown it?
2: Yeah, I've I went to quite a lot of trouble going through all of this using the extant returns. Now, we were talking offline earlier, and I mentioned that a lot of these returns no longer exist. But the ones that do, um, when you compare the the sickness rate or the morbidity rates with earlier campaigns in the eighteenth century, it's really not very different. Um, and even by the very end of the campaign, by uh, the last dated return in 1794 is Christmas Eve, 24th of December. And you're looking for the British element of, of the force, um, 33% uh, sick. I mean, contrast this with, uh, say, the Guards Brigade encamped at Warburg in 1760, where the morbidity level was 50%. Um, you know, so that's possibly an extreme example. But if you look at most campaigns in the 18th century, the figures are huge and that's not to excuse them, but it was par for the course, I'm afraid. Um, And a lot of the, when you have a lot of human beings um, rubbing shoulders together, you get things like dysentery. They didn't understand things like personal hygiene quite so well as we do today, Um, dysentery, typhus, very very common uh, throughout the um, 18th century so you know it, it's um it, it's quite harrowing when you read these descriptions of of what it was like but i think for this campaign you could read pretty much everything that that went before
1: yeah i mean it's worth uh, apologies we are going to make a minor detour folks to the the peninsula wall where i, I do have kind of figures in my head but at times, Wellington's dealing with something like 40% um, of his men convalescing, and the large proportion of that is illness. It's not necessarily um, battle injury. Um, what's the biggest drain on armies for hundreds of years? It's not actually battlefield casualties in the vast majority of circumstances, because to actually decimating an army is quite rare. What is much more common is that that decimation occurs due to disease, so it's I'm pleased that you kind of set that in context for us, because certainly I've been guilty of kind of overplaying um, the the scale of the the disease, certainly in my head. Um, So thank you for that Robin Uh, apologies, we will continue with a minor sort of principle related detour um, to talk about supply more broadly. Because we always Lord Wellington's approach, um, don't we, but tend to suggest that the need to focus on supply in his head in part comes from this campaign, and partly of course from India where he was moving, you know, huge baggage trains around because of the nature of, of armies on the Indian subcontinent. How bad is the supply situation? I mean, you're talking here about you know, moves to to cut down, the sizer of the the baggage trainer and so on in terms of getting the material to the men when they need it making sure they've got food all of that kind of thing how well does the system cope
2: mm. essentially the the duties of the commissariat uh, lay in three areas it's food forage and cash cash to pay the army, cash to pay for supplies. So managing cash is is pretty well underpinning everything else. But you're dealing with an 18th century way of making war. And that was to have fixed magazines uh, with winter quarters, army supplied from fixed magazines. This is more or less what happens in 1793. Uh, And and there are various contracts signed with local suppliers, um, not only to to fill the magazines with various commodities, but also to provide the transportation assets as well. So uh, getting food to the magazines and then very often taking it from the magazines to where it's going to be distributed. But a critical point is seasonality here. Um, Obviously, again, it sounds blindingly obvious, but there are. Uh, seasons for planting and harvesting and growing of crops. The army first arrives, the first elements of the expeditionary force arrive in early March of 1793. So by that time, we've already heard, you know, the Prussians have been marching up and down, serve the Austrians and serve the French. So there are not granaries bursting with produce to supply the new arrivals, the British. That has already been taken account of. Um, So for the first couple of months, uh, the commissary general, whose name was Brooke Watson, um, he is a bit dependent on having stuff sent over from Britain because it's seasonality, you know. Um, The other thing that takes a bit of time to settle down is uh, being advised of movements of the army in a timely fashion so that um, food and forage can be supplied at the destination. And that implies strong coordination between the headquarters staff planning said movements and the commissariat. So after a bit of argy-bargy between the two sides, that does uh, settle down and works quite well. The other thing to bear in mind is when the army does move somewhere, maybe for very valid operational reasons, it might be moving to an area where where there are no supplies available um, because you know, it wasn't anticipated, for example. So the Allied armies did help each other out. Generally speaking, the, the, the British side would help the Austrians with cash commissariat function. Uh, the Austrians would supply the British with uh, food and forage, for example. So this, this happened when um, the Duke of York moves down to the, the, Austrian, the area of the Austrian headquarters prior to undertaking the siege of Valenciennes. Uh, and the army is supplied from Austrian magazines, but then the British hand over loads of cash to help the Austrians. So it's kind of symbiotic relationship. Where this breaks down, this 18th century model of relying on fixed magazines is in 1794, because the French have recruited um, their their soldiers en masse. Uh, They've trained them, they've equipped them, they've hidden in the fortress barrier, and then they emerge from there and they push the allied combined army away from this fortress barrier, then it becomes a war of movement from about June, July 1794 onwards. So that makes it very difficult to rely on fixed magazines for uh, subsisting the army. And then you're moving back uh, through into the United Provinces um, where there have not been magazines um, put together waiting for you and remember this all comes down to uh, forming contracts with suppliers um, going into the market buying the assets that you need whether it's forage or different types of grain for man or beast uh, and and meat and that sort of thing Uh, and it takes time to put together these resources and operations don't always allow for the time Required, So that is when you start having a a problem. Um, And there are various calculations that that Brooke Watson as Commissary General does. You know, it's going to take me so many weeks to uh, and so many wagon loads of um, produce to fill this magazine suitable for 30,000 men for a month, for example. And under the sort of operational pressures the army is under at the back end of 1794, those things are just not possible. Then you get the additional problem of attitude of the local population because they're not going to get paid. That is their fear. The French are overrunning the territory. You can leave a promissory note or, or um, a bill drawn on HM Treasury, but is it ever going to be honored? And if you're a local, you know, merchant or something, you're probably going to say, Well, I'm not going to take the risk. So you then refuse to supply. Or you only supply what you can afford to lose and not, not be paid for. But it gets even worse than that when they cross the, the border of Holland and they're heading towards Bremen in, in early 1795, when some of the German uh, principalities um, refuse to supply anything at all because they're probably scared of retribution by the French. You know, so this these are factors which Strictly speaking, lie outside the ability of the commissary function to influence. So it does work okay while things are under control um, up to the middle of 1793. Do you want me to talk about military supplies as well? Go for it. Okay. We're dealing with an army which is undergoing very rapid expansion in terms of manpower. until we reach the sort of numbers we're more familiar with later in the French wars period. Um, but this means huge numbers of recruits. And in a kind of pre-industrial age, the ability of Britain to supply the equipment and the clothing is limited. So you have um, recruits being sent over in what they called slop clothing, So this is before they're issued the scarlet jacket and the grey trousers, whatever they're wearing. They're given slot clothing at the the depot in Chatham, for example, recruit depot. Uh, And this is kind of loose fitting garments that are are, uh, uh, designed as a temporary measure until uniforms are issued. But you're getting recruits for line regiments being sent to Flanders wearing this stuff. So any war gamers out there wanting to know how to paint your armies, Bear this in mind, Um, and this this uh, also means that a lot of units are are not fitted out with the due measure of accoutrements Um, and and units, you know, maybe lacking various things that are supposed they're supposed to be wearing. Uh, Perhaps more important than that, muskets. Um, Would you believe units are being sent over without them? and (laughs) sorry guys zach is looking astonished at me
1: (laughs) excuse me whilst i just pick my gob up off the floor this has an air of sort of russia in world war one pick up the gun of the guy in front of you when he shot mentality you're sending it's you said yourself this isn't a huge force that sent out either you know uh, we're talking what, maybe eight thousand men in the the initial being sent out in by,
2: by the time they they get to uh, sort of middle of there's there's about eight thousand guys who come over with Lord Moira in July of ninety four, but then there are various other brigades sent over before and after that. So you're dealing at by the end of seventeen ninety four about thirty five thousand something like this, roughly speaking. But um, I mean, because there are because there is a shortage. Of arms, the Board of Ordnance buys two consignments of 10,000 muskets each from manufacturers, uh, gun makers in Liège. And these are shipped to Ostend. Um, this is at the, the, the purchase, is done in early
1: 1794. Are they aware of different calibers being a potential issue here?
2: They've done it before. (laughs) Yeah, they 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 are. But the key point I'm the key points I'm wanting to make with this, Zach, is the Duke of York finds out about this. Okay. And so he then basically writes writes back to London. He says, Well, I'm going to take a thousand muskets off the first consignment at Ostend. And he does. And this, (laughs) this is to arm the 12th, 38th and 55th regiments because they've been sent over without a full complement. I mean, I'll I'll quantify this for you, okay? I've I've got a practical example which you might be interested in. Five battalions, infantry battalions, were sent over to Flushing at the end of August 1794, commanded by Colonel Henry Lord Mulgrave five regiments. Let me go through them one by one. He he writes to Henry Dundas, the Home Secretary, uh, or now by now, the um, Secretary of War, Minister of State by this time. And he goes through the shortcomings of each unit. So I'll just quickly do this. 31st Regiment, they required at least 240 stand of arms. The 34th had only 20 cartridges per man instead of 60. The 79th had only eight cartridges per man and only one officer per company. The 84th, the regiment had been constantly moving around since it was first raised. So there'd been no chance to train anybody at all. So just a mob of recruits, basically. They're they're being trained once they reach the theatre of operations. And lastly, the 85th had 30 cartridges per man but they have never had arms in their hands. Okay, and none of them have their quota of battalion guns. So they have to wait until November when those turn up. And then they have to second men to act to operate them and and as drivers so they can haul them along.
1: Wow. I mean, when you hear that, it's not really a wonder that the expedition doesn't entirely go to plan is it uh, although obviously it's far more complex than that but nonetheless um it gives a real sense of just what a horrific mess this is everything cobbled together at the last minute um and it sort of feels like willful neglect of britain's armed forces really um i mean maybe there's a need for a, an episode on the 18th century way of waging war to kind of set some of this in a in a broader context but it's it feels very alien to certainly what i'm used to um, in the sort of post 1800 era can we talk about women within the context Mm. of all of this because i know you've tried particularly hard to uncover the the stories and experiences of women during this campaign what did you end up finding what evidence is there because i'd imagine there's not a vast amount to be drawn upon
2: Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to have a look at women because one of my chapters is uh, on regiments, it's called regiments, and it's all about the training, recruitment, and experience of the individual units. And an integral part of every unit were the women. Um, Why were they important? Because in terms of numbers, I was able to quantify the numbers by looking at embarkation returns by the end of 1793 you've got roughly speaking about 800 women officially on the strength with the expeditionary force but because there's a big influx of units in 1794 this goes up to about 2100 mostly just with the infantry and the cavalry i wasn't able to find figures for the board of ordnance uh, but it, it so that that might add another few dozen or or 100 something like that but Imagine 1794, over 2,000 women, 2,000, right? They've got to be subsisted because they're all entitled to a ration and they're subject to military discipline as well. So they've got to be administered by the army. And that includes things like warm clothing provision in the winter. Uh, That means transportation back to Britain for wives of husbands who've been killed. And they have the option to have a free passage back to England. You've also got children, because most of the women will have children. And on the base of the um, embarkation returns, from what I could tell, the number of children were about 50% of the number of women. So if you have over 2,000 women in 1794 with the army, you may well have about a 1,000 children. Now, as Zach says, this is getting the... Being able to quantify this is actually quite difficult, and the reason is I mentioned their the strength. It's not strictly true because the official records, um, things like muster books and what have you, do not record them. So we're only looking at um, how much space they take up on transports, and you know, and, and ships are, are charted off the market accordingly. Um, but that that's why I think they're quite important. It's the sheer numbers. You know, we've been talking quite a lot about. Commissariat issues and logistical tail, and and all this sort of thing. Well, you've also got several thousand women and children who you're also having to feed and transport around the battlefield or around the landscape somehow. What did they do? Um, Essentially, the military authorities at home throughout the 18th century, and no doubt, you know, for the whole period of the French Wars as well, uh, had a bit of a sort of equivocal view of women. Um, and what they were mainly concerned with was, was two issues. One was financial, because I mentioned you, you they, they were subsisted by the army and that cost money. Um, and what they didn't want uh, also was the poorly paid soldier having to flog his equipment in order to be able to afford to have a wife. Um, and so it was it was quite strictly controlled who who could marry. And Because you've got this uh, public liability, the women financial liability, the women more or less had to work to earn their keep Uh, and that was part of a kind of social contract between the women as a group and the army that, yes, we will tolerate you, but only if you fulfill your side of the bargain, which is earn your keep. And what they didn't want uh, was women to corrupt the men because the men were paid by the state. And so they didn't want uh, women uh, giving the men infectious diseases, for example, women of loose morals. And they didn't want women to sell alcohol to the men. Uh, and so they're kind of drunk and incapable of doing their duty. Um, so basically what they did on campaign was uh, nurses in the hospitals, cooks, laundresses. um Obviously, in the regimental context, I'm sure they had a, a role with foraging as well. Uh, and if they transgress this social contract, you know, we'll look after you as long as you offer your labour. The, the measures in the general orders, uh, as written, are quite strict. They could be flogged. But I never saw a single case when that actually happened. It was a kind of implied threat that it could happen. And uh, really, the measures taken were, they were cast off from the army. So in other words, on the continent, no money to get home again, back to Britain. That was generally what what would happen to women who transgressed.
1: Yeah, um, I have two women in my court martial database. Uh, neither are actually found guilty uh, and punished. Um, there is this. I mean, certainly the provost technically had the facility to punish women as well as men um, if they caught on the spot finding records for the provost is a whole other issue um but yes my experience is much the same that you know it's it's certainly an implied threat um good to know that the army was willing to give um widowed um give widows you know the the option to be transported back um shame they weren't sort of quite as nice to the uh, the women who joined the army over the course of the peninsula but that's a a rant that i've uh, made many many times on this show so we will move on this has been great robin but i want to wrap this up by talking about legacies if we mm. may um the obvious point that gets made here is the duke of york ends up being commander-in-chief and being galvanized into action by the failures of this campaign and that's very much um the line of uh, Richard Glover's book not to be confused with Gareth Glover folks completely different people many many years apart Gareth is not that old because Richard Glover was writing in oh I want to say the 60s um but he wrote a book called Peninsula Preparation which is effectively about this and the long shadow of the Flanders expedition how much of those changes in reality would you say were underway at the time of the Flanders expedition and how much are a result of lessons learned?
2: Well, you could you could argue actually that that changes had started uh, taking place from 1790 at the time of the mobilisation. Uh, what was termed the Spanish Armament, the the Nootka Sound crisis, um, when the British army was mobilised with the um, <clears throat> due to the possibility of going to war with Spain. And so things like opening recruitment in Ireland uh, for units based outside of Ireland. Uh, was was changed. Then the two companies per battalion that were axed in 1783 were reinstated in 1790, um, and the, the the practice of uh, recruiting using independent companies was was resurrected then as well, which which proved pretty successful in 1793-94 the the problem then was the guys were sent the recruits were sent over before they'd been trained so it kind of negated the success of the actual recruitment side of the operation but i mean after the campaign there are a whole load of things which start to happen we've we've touched on all the transportation issues i mentioned the formation of the Corps of Royal wagoners Yes, it's disbanded in 1795. However, it sets a precedent for similar uh, operations later, instead of relying on on hired civilian personnel and wagons uh, for your army transportation, it's taken in-house to use a sort of modern commercial term. And the ordinance is doing the same thing because they form uh, something called the Corps of Captains, Commissaries and Drivers from September 1794. At the beginning of that year, they're also replacing a lot of the civilian drivers uh, for um, attached to the artillery companies uh, with um, military personnel. But, you know, that doesn't happen to a great enough extent to make a, a change during the campaign itself. So, so things are happening, you know, transportation, a key thing, which, again, I'm sure people might be interested to know this because it, it reflects on operations to do with Army officer promotions. Um, we all know when the Duke of York becomes Commander in Chief, it's one of the first things um, he looks at. And you know the regulations are brought in that you you have to be minimum age sixteen for your first commission. You, Subalterns must serve for at least two years before promotion to captain, and they have to. And all officers have to have six years in the army before promotion to major. But at the time of this campaign, none of that exists. It's all in the future. So what did it actually mean for the regiments in Flanders? Well, by the end of 1794, there's 22 line infantry battalions in the theatre of operations. There are six battalions commanded by Lieutenant-Colonels aged between 19 and 26 with no, none of them with any previous service experience, I mean, active service experience in a the theatre of war. So the one that in my view takes the biscuit um, is the Lieutenant Colonel Lord Craven of the 3rd Regiment, the Buffs. Now this guy was uh, commissioned ensign on the 7th of September, 1793 and he ends up as a lieutenant colonel on the 7th of March, 1794. And he then transfers to the 3rd Regiment and is all of a sudden commanding it in action against the French. So he's gone from civilian to unit commanding officer in less than a year. I mean, with the best will in the world, however good you might turn out to be later, how is that workable?
1: Wow, what a point on which to end. Um, yeah, just it, <laughs> it shows just how rotten a system um, Britain could be when it came to the Ancien Regime way of doing things. Um, and it makes the changes that, that happen later so much more remarkable. Um, as a result, Robin, this has been such an enlightening hour and a bit. Thank you so much for your time. No want of courage. The British Army in Flanders, 1793 to 95, is out already, folks. It's a Hellion book. You heard my rant, hopefully, in the last episode. If you can't afford to go direct to the publisher, then please do go by the book. However, if at all possible, please avoid going to Amazon because Jeff Bezos takes the profits and turns it into rocket fuel. Hellion, independent company, they could really use your custom. These companies have been struggling massively as a result of lockdown and all the rest of it. And there's also a point that if you go direct to the publisher, then the author actually sees a little bit more in terms of the royalties because the company is the one that takes the profit, um, which therefore means that the the very meager royalties that authors get for producing history books, such as the nature of the business, it's it's nice to actually see the author see something out of that money that you're spending on the book so please do go direct to hellion if you possibly can the website is hellion.co.uk they have a search function if you just google the british army in flanders 1793 to 95 you'll be able to find it it really won't be a challenge at all robin it's been great to talk to you thank you so much for your time
2: it's been great fun zach thanks very much i've really enjoyed it
1: before you go, folks, all the usual things. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can find me on Twitter at Z White History. A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters. It is their support that keeps this podcast going. If you're interested in contributing to the show, you can find out more from the link in the description. Prices start from £1 a month, and you get all kinds of perks from discount codes on um, pen and sword books, which means you actually quite rapidly end up regaining some of the money that you invest in the show, all the way through to voting rights, shout-outs in episodes, and even one-to-one meetings with me. If a regular subscription isn't your thing, which believe me, I completely understand, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the description. And all the money gets reinvested into producing more content further down the line, and I have a big project in mind involving footage from battlefields that could potentially be uh, a really engaging, exciting project if I can bring the money together to make it happen. A particular shout-out, as ever, to my Emperor-level patrons Mark Stoose, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell. My marshal patrons, Matt Bone and Marcus Cribb. My Commander patrons, John Haynes, Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin and Michael Guest. My mentioned in Dispatches Plus patron, Noah Fink. And my mentioned in dispatches patrons: Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell Grieve, Beatrice De Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruinsgirl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscom, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlan. Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson and Graham Goodwin. I'll be back very soon but until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves my friends, stay well, stay safe and as always, thank you for listening.